0: If you like music podcasts, and I do, you should check out Osiris. Or as Wu-Tang Clan would say, the Osiris of this podcast ship. It's a network of 30 music and culture podcasts that dive deep into bands, genres, and artist interviews. You might enjoy Under the Scales, the Helping Friendly podcast, or Beyond the Pond, all of which go
1: deep into the culture of fish. Do you think they're going to talk about the dreadlocks I had halfway down my back when I used to follow fish, Nick? I think it's inevitable and they should have you on as a regular guest. (laughs) You can also check out the Broke Down podcast, which explores the rich history of the Grateful Dead. Nick, do you think they're going to explore the time that I literally took (laughs) a pair of corduroy pants
0: and sewed a bell bottom of patchwork into the side? I think it would be a crime to not include that at some point. (laughs) Maybe we can also uh, sneak in their fear of a craft beer planet, which combines discussion about the beer industry and music. Osiris is creating and curating music and culture podcasts for passionate fans. Whether or not you have dreadlocks, you should definitely check them out.
1: Check them out.
0: Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan.
1: Right
2: here.
0: Felicia right Tyler. Tron Quest. Fred Armisen.
1: Fritz Paul.
0: Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie
2: Cosmos. Flying Lewis. Hi, we're Haim. And you're
3: listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! What's
2: up?
1: What is up? I'm your host, Elia Einhorn. Welcome back to the Talk House Podcast. And I want to give a big shout out this week to all the fathers out there this week's show
0: celebrates you. To join me, another father. Nick Dawson, editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film. And yes, I have brought life into this world. You're welcome.
1: <laughs> Nick, we've put together a very special show this week. Two fathers and sons, both creators, in conversation.
0: Yeah. No, it's it, two great pairings. It, of course, it's a little weird that it's both two dudes, but one of them had to be a father in each pair. <laughs> yes. So...
1: And we did. I want it on the record, Nick. You and I put out a number of asks to daughters and fathers, but for whatever reason, it just didn't come in. Yeah. Next year. Next year. Now, I am super psyched about the two talks that happened for today's episode. We have a man you might recognize from our intro, not just this week, but every week, Prince Paul, a.k.a. Paul Sr., And his son, DJP For Real, a.k.a. Paul Jr., who DJs for Lil Uzi Vert. These are two dudes at the forefront of hip-hop production over the years. We've also got...
0: Larry Fessenden, a legend of the horror scene. And his son, Jack, who is absurdly young and absurdly talented. We'll get to that in a little bit, but it's kind of unfair.
1: Let's kick things off with our first talk from The Pauls. Now, Nick... I know I always shout this out when Prince Paul comes on the show. He's been on with DJ Premier. He's been on with The Flaming Lips, Wayne Coyne. But Paul is seriously and legit a legend of hip-hop production. He's been a member of Stetsasana, Handsome Boy Modeling School, Gravediggers, and recently Brooksyll with Ladybug Mecca. Paul has produced a number of hip-hop's most iconic records, including all of my favorite De La Soul joints. Paul's most recent record was The
0: Redux. That was in 2017. Yeah, I love the dude. He is a legit legend and also just like the nicest guy. The nicest dude and so funny. And if you need any sort of convincing that talent runs in the family, beats are in his blood. DJP for real, Paul's son is killing it right now. He's little Uzi Vert's DJ. And uh, based on everything that we can tell, he is absolutely crushing it right now. He really is, man. DJP
1: for real has been spinning since he was eight years old. He started producing at only 13. And since then, dude has rocked some of the most iconic stages and festivals in the world. Awesome. The two Pauls caught up earlier this month. And I have to say, this conversation was very insightful and very, very funny.
0: Their chemistry is way better than my chemistry with my dad, I gotta say. <laughs> like, I don't know. They're funny and they interact so well. And there's uh, some moments of like revelation, I think, as well, which is pretty special.
1: There are. There are. We, we get to hear about their collaboration, about pushing one's comfort zone and never taking the straight path. They also chop it up on faking it till you make it. And Paul's first ever DJ gig, opening up for Wu-Tang's The Jizza. Wow. DJP For Real joined us from a studio in his hometown of Atlanta. While Prince Paul was a hell of a good sport, the studio that we'd put him in in Long Island didn't fucking open on time, Nick. The engineer didn't show up on time, so Paul called in from his cell phone. <laughs> this is a man who makes shit happen. He makes shit happen. Should
0: we roll it? Let's roll the tape.
3: Hey, what's up? This is Prince Paul, and I'm here on this Father's Day talk House special that we're doing with my son, DJP
4: for real. Pow, pow. Say hi, P for real. Hey, how's everybody doing?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You can call me Paul Sr. Uh, He is Paul Jr. And I have a couple of questions for this Father's Day special. The first one is, what is the most important artistic or otherwise lesson that we learn from each other? You want to go first?
4: So basically what I have learned from dad, basically, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm going first.
3: Yeah, of oh, course
4: okay. you're going first. All right. I mean, w- w- what haven't I learned? I mean, I, I grew up with you from washing the dishes to, uh, <laughs> to, 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 to to recording in the studio, right? I mean, but I, I guess the most artistic thing I learned from you is um, I guess stepping out of your comfort zone or stepping out of the box as far as like production-wise or even DJing. You know what I'm saying? Like, even based on your production, you, you, you've never stayed in... I guess the straight path you always did your own thing which I guess was which made you great in your own lane. You know what I'm saying? I kind of adapted that, to, you know, the same thing, especially my DJing cuz you know, if I bit off of everybody else, I guess I wouldn't be in the position I am now, right? And not to sound cocky, but yeah, you know what I'm saying?
3: <laughs> oh Look at that. I I will take credit for all that except them dishes. Them dishes was crunchy. <laughs> <you watched> <laughs> <So.
4: Yeah>. yo, <laughs> yo, 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 Rewash them Joyce again. It wasn't it wasn't right. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, you know, at least that's the one thing I taught you. Well, I, that's flattering.
3: I, I would I would have to say what I've learned from you is probably a generational thing and that's You can actually fake it till you make it. You know what I'm saying? And I I say that respectfully. I've seen you tell kids, like, yo, I'm a nice DJ and I'm this and I'm that. And didn't have the skill set yet, but fooled everybody to believe that you were nice. Yep. yep. Took the time. (laughs) Took the time to learn how to get nice, which was a few years, and then actually lived up to your own height. I've never in my life ever, ever, I never thought that would be possible. I never, I always thought that was going against the grain from how I was raised, you know what I'm saying, <laughs> and, and music and any other thing. But you've taught me that you can actually do that. Like you can, you can advertise that you're an expert at something, not be an expert, but work your way to it. You know, <laughs> and, that's, and that's beautiful. That's
4: beautiful. You know what, it's, it's, it's letting everybody know that one day you will be great and you could do it if you put your mind to it. You know what I'm saying? And, and that's exactly what it was. <laughs> you know what? You did, you willed it into
3: existence. Yeah, I, I willed I, I it
4: into existence. Exactly what? Exactly. I'm, I'm gonna go to the next question. Right. It says, "How
3: was it to experience your father or child and their life through their art?"
4: Hmm. How was it to experience their life through their art? Hmm. Yeah. So I would say, just based on because, you know, I grew up with you and i seen you make a lot of the stuff that, you know, especially like psychoanalysis and, you know, the the, the daylight stuff, gravedigger stuff. Of course, I was a kid, but i still seen you make it. But what I remember you making, for, for whatever reason, is the politics of the business album. Right? And for some reason, as a kid, when I watched you working on that album, it made me want to it made me want to, I guess, zoom in and focus on, you know, what you were actually doing and, you know, stuff like that. And then from there on, I, I was kind of locked in like, hey, I want to do this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, hey, I, I I, want to produce. I want to take this serious. I want to DJ because this looks fun. And I actually like watching you do it. You know what I'm saying? So
3: I would have to say for me, um, experiencing, I guess, through your art. I mean, there's a few things you've done. There was. Um, Man, when you used to do those those stories on MySpace.
4: Oh, man, I forgot yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> like, 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 like
3: randomly make up stupid stuff yeah, yeah. And, and, and really funny and put sound effects to it yeah, yeah. and then actually get a following on MySpace.
4: Yo. <laughs> I forgot about I that. I
3: thought that was incredible. I mean, it was enough for me to experience and watch that and want to do Negroes on Ice, which we did, which was really an offshoot of you. Doing your MySpace thing, <laughs> but and, and, and I and I would say another proud moment for me is watching you on stage with with little Uzi and man and commanding the crowd. You know, I was like, wow, this is uh, you know, <laughs> this is truly amazing. I, I never thought that would that would happen in that capacity. You know, what I'm saying like, let alone myself. Not short shorting you, but I was just surprised. I was like, yo, there's like thousands of kids. And they're
4: listening to him. That's amazing. <laughs> Yo, my, my son is a grown up. You know what I'm saying? Hey, but you know what's crazy? What's that? Yeah, every time I DJ, I always think about when, when we went to Paris or whatever we was at, and I was in that club. Oh, yeah, I, yeah. I, was, I was like, I was like twelve, thirteen, and in, in that club, and there was <laughs> all the women dancing on top of the tables and everything. <laughs> and you was like, you was like, look, P. Look how the crowd reacts to every song I play, and from every time I DJ, I think I, I I don't think of that same exact time, but that's what I think about. Like, watch how the crowd reacts when I drop this song or this song, whatever. So that one time in my life, that moment in my life when you did that little Zach, when you told me what's gonna go on and what's gonna happen when each song played, I, I I carry that on to every time I do anything period (laughs)
3: wow how do you like that man that was that was a teaching moment
4: taking your son into
3: a club trying to disguise him as over 21 in Paris I was like 12 13 yeah right (laughs) I was a child (laughs) you know but I'm glad it was a valuable lesson you know and and, or at least a a learning experience and that was that's what I was there to teach you and it it was fun It it was fun Okay, and here's our final question, and that is, what is your favorite memory of the other person's art or process? Perhaps a show, song, film, etc.
4: Oh, man, there's it's a few. You know, I guess, yeah, what's what I just said, that time when we was in France and we was in that club, and um, <laughs> <coughs> that, that 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 was more so like an eye-opening experience. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow, you know, like if, if I played this song at this time, you know what I'm saying? That's how the crowd's going to react. Or if I stop it here and put this song in right here, it's, it, it made it made it more mathematical to me in my head. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because I actually seen it live. You know? So, so that, that actually, like, it changed the perspective of DJing for me. You know what I'm saying? Like, hey, if I do this at this time, I could change this, and this is how they're going to react if I did You know what I'm saying? So that's how I kind of incorporate everything into it now. And when I DJ, or I do anything. But um besides that, when we went to Africa and you went to go speak... At Red Bull Oh wow
3: Yeah
4: yeah we I gonna speak at yep. Red Bull I guess You know it's, I guess Certain certain areas I guess I tend to listen more <laughs> Rather than We're at home Chilling in the crib <laughs> You know what I'm saying When you tell me Yeah you know I, I sets to Sonic And De La Soul And, and Grave Diggers And I'm listening and, like, and yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah 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 but, Yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but, but I guess when We're in, s- <laughs> in Other settings You know what I'm saying Like out the country Or whatever it is Or when you speak In that whatever I tend to listen more so I, I I guess that that was cool for me, and, and of course going to South Africa that was that was like a big thing for me because that's like um, I guess for anybody go to South Africa is a big thing, you know, I, <laughs> or anywhere out the country, period. But <laughs> but South Africa, and then we, you speaking to uh, I guess the, the kids, or whatever. That, that that was pretty cool for me. I, I like that. I kind of like, man, I wanna I wanna do this, you know. <laughs> Wow, I'm surprised you remembered that. Yeah, I, you know I, what I'm saying? Because
3: that—that was, that was
4: a while. There's a lot of things that you that you don't think I remember that I remember. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, well, I just remember all the good stuff. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah that, that, uh, Man, yo, I took you all over the place, man. Like, look, look how we're talking, like, like we, like we got it, like that, right? Like, <laughs> man, I took you to, get to Paris, <laughs> France, and I took you to South Africa. Nah, nah, it, it, it,
4: it was spread out through time. It was spread out through time. So,
3: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, but, but hey, man, to hook you up, man. I still hook you up. But I would say, I would say, for me, I mean, there's a, a bunch of them, um, but one that that really stuck with me was when you opened up for the genius. <laughs> really? <But it's> <laughs> yeah you, you it was your first real dj gig on your own it was now mind you i'm still thinking like you don't have the skills to pay the bill <laughs> so i'm like i'm waiting for you to fall flat on your face but i was i was really i was really impressed when you Got your little DJ set together. I still have the, the I still have the playlist. I have it, I, I still have. It. I got your, you got your little DJ set together, and you put some songs out I, I was like, man, I never play that, but I didn't want to critique you. I was like, you know, let, let me let me let him do his thing. <laughs> what? How come? How come you went out there in Brooklyn, opened up for the genius, started DJing, and killed it? <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> <God>! <laughs> you know it's crazy. With, with, the, with those very... With those very songs, I said that wouldn't
4: work. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm not like a work. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think one of them songs was like a uh, uh who was it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't think. Was, was it a Biggie song? Yeah, I think yeah, it was, like it was a biggie, biggie song. Yeah, it was like a but it was something else too. It was like Doom or something. He was yeah, you like, like that's not gonna work. <laughs> oh, no no, you didn't say, no, no, you didn't say that. You was like, you was like, I never played that. Oh, I never played that before. But, hey, you know, it might work. <laughs> now it's more like one of the type of answers. It might yo, work. You <laughs> know what it was? It was Biggie's Gimme the Loot. Oh, yeah, it was Gimme the Loot. That's exactly what it was. It was Gimme the um, Loot. <laughs> and you
3: were singing back to it, I was like, yo. You, yo, yo. That was probably... Uh, the first gig we did was Negroes on Ice, and that was the first gig you did in front of a big crowd. I, yep. forgot, I forgot, what was what, 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 the, the Knitting Factory in Brooklyn?
4: Knitting Factory, yep.
3: Oh, man. Yo, man, that that's impressive, man. <laughs> yeah, you
4: know, after that, I had a newfound respect for you, man. That was, uh... And I was terrified. I was. I remember you. I remember you got off the stage. You sat in front of the stage and watched me. I was like, "Oh, where are you going? Don't, don't leave me!" Hey, hey. Now, now, now. I look at you, man.
3: You DJ in front of thousands of kids. You speak in front of people. You're you, you mad cocky.
4: Nah, you know what I'm saying? I ain't mad cocky. Extra confident. I'm confident. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> confident. <Okay. laughs> All right. Well, I, I guess this wraps
3: up the Father's Day special. And I just want to say I have great kids, which is my son right here, people real, my firstborn, and also my daughter, Layla, who uh, I would love to have had on this conversation, but she's in school. Yeah. And, uh, you know, being smarter than we are. Uh, but, <laughs> right. <laughs> but I just want to say man it, it's it's been it's been it's been real and I've learned a lot of things that I didn't know on this conversation so
4: <laughs> and um, and I I would like to say thank you dad for uh for showing me the way and musically and and, and of course as being a great father and uh and and, and, oh, and Yep, yep. And and, and and happy Father's Day. <laughs>
3: oh man, thank you. You
4: know, <laughs>
3: hey, I would tell you the same but if I told you the same that means that you didn't tell me something. Nah, nah. You yeah,
4: no. yeah, don't put that into the universe <laughs> yet. You know what I'm saying? How about you Father, some DJ style? Yeah. <laughs> right. There you go. <laughs> All
3: right. From Prince Paul and DJ P for real, y'all have a very happy Father's Day. And we are out.
4: Bong, bong. I
0: love that. I feel like I can really learn something from those guys. I also want to learn how to do that sound at the end. Bonk,
1: bonk. I also pretty much just want to hang out with the Pauls all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So
0: I guess we should uh,
1: move on to my dudes. Let's do it. Let's do it. For the talkhouse film portion of today's episode, Nick, you and I got to enter a studio that was also a museum of horror memorabilia.
0: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Larry Fessenden's office. We wandered in there not knowing that it would be such a special place. There's books and DVDs, wall to wall. There's horror toys and figurines. Oh my God.
1: I mean, there must have been 200 different figurines from like five versions of Godzilla, four different aliens. We're going to post a little video I took on our Instagram at TalkHouse.
0: Yep, we absolutely had to capture the specialness of that place. And you will see that on our socials. Go hit him up. We also captured the really special relationship that Larry and Jack have. Yeah, these guys are pretty uh, amazing. I mean, Larry, of course, is a legendary director of low-budget horror movies from Habit to Wendigo to The Last Winter to his new movie, Depraved. And through his company, Glass Eye Picks, he's also fostered the careers of a bunch of really great directors from Ty West to Kelly Riker. And he also, because he does everything, also (laughs) acts. And uh, was most recently seen in uh, the new Jim Jarmusch movie, The Dead Don't Die, as, I believe, a zombie. Well, Nick, you talk about the way he's fostered careers. One of the careers that he's fostered most closely, Mm -hmm. his son. Yeah, Jack. And, uh, you know, this kid is pretty remarkable. I call him a kid because he's what... 19 now. He's in college. Just barely out of high school. And, uh, you know, he, he started directing his first feature at age 15, finished it at 16, this movie Stray Bullets. And he's now prepping his second feature, Foxhole. And he's just kind of a remarkable kid. He's way more mature, both creatively and personally, than anybody I ever knew when I was at age. Just super, super accomplished. and Another multi-hyphenate. He's also got a band that he plays in and produces for called Holiday.
1: Yeah. And uh, you got a little vinyl gift. Yeah, Jack gave me one of the records. I can't wait to listen to it, man. Now, Jack and Larry tell some amazing stories and like the Pauls in our first segment, somehow combine real heartfelt emotion and hilarity.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things I really love that kind of combines those things is the fact that Jack still calls Larry daddy, even when they're on set. Yes,
1: he does. When we first came in, he said, Daddy, the talk house is here to see you. It's just, just adorable. It was very cute
0: they touch on so many things like the very distinctive quality of having two independent filmmakers as your parents because jack's mother is uh, beck underwood who's also a stop motion Mm -hmm. animator and a production designer and and so growing up in that curious world which to most people would seem unusual but growing up around it jack was just on set the whole time and that leads to some great stories about some of the things he did as this precocious little kid (laughs) interacting with filmmakers and having very strong ideas about whether they're doing the right thing or uh, or not.
1: Yeah, we get to hear about Jack sobbing uncontrollably after a movie he'd been hearing about
0: half his life got made. Yeah, and, and that wasn't like 10 years ago. That was like a few months ago. So that's a great story. And his getting scarred by what Larry was working on. Pretty inevitable, I think. Yeah. Pretty inevitable. There's some great stories about that. Also, why he hasn't seen a bunch of his dad's movies. Interesting insight there. Yeah. And Jack's decision to retire as a horror director in his mid-teens.
2: <laughs> Let's give a listen. Let's do it. I mean, I've grown up in this this cinematic household my whole life. My mom is a stop-motion animator and uh, also worked in production design a lot. Um, and my dad makes horror movies. And so I grew up visiting their sets. You know, Stakeland, a very memorable one. Bitter Feast, I had to live in a closet because our house um, in Woodstock, New York was turned into a the house for the crew and also the set. And I remember I drew on the wall murals of cameras and stuff. My mom just texted me a photo of one. I think that was 10 years ago this summer. So yeah, I've, I've grown up in a, an independent film household my whole life. And now I'm in the last several years, I've been getting more seriously into making films. And it's I'm lucky because you know, where my parents Big time Hollywood producers or something, it might be harder to get my foot in the door that way. But because they're used to making small movies for low budgets, I've been able to sort of become a part of that system myself too, which is really lucky. Of me. And uh, if I had to think of one thing I've learned from my dad, well, I actually don't know what I'm going to say. So <laughs> something well, having to do with uh, that use what, you, use what you have and what you know and don't you know don't underestimate what you can do with just those things i guess of course
5: one doesn't want to bring one's kid into a world of pain and anxiety and yearning which is all the emotions one has trying to raise money and make these low budget movies or any kind of movies uh i've been lucky enough to work also in the hollywood system briefly and um it's funny I always say that it's a hierarchy in showbiz no matter where you are you're still yearning for more for more power control and and respect so that's an ongoing experience actually of just being an artist working with my kid is a great pleasure I I've always liked to mentor Young people, because I'm extremely opinionated, and the only place I have power is with people who are younger than me. (laughs) So I can tell them how I think movies should be made, and I follow a, a model that I base on sort of Hitchcock, which is to say that you design your film, and I think this gives kids a way to understand how to even enter into this strange and and multifaceted art form where you have to have a vision, you have to be able to answer why are we trying to do this, why should it be a close-up, why a long shot. So I really love speaking about the language of film, and I think I brought uh, Jack into um, an ability to think that way, and and that gives people their own agency, and a lot of the filmmakers I've worked with have graduated to... um, Uh, positions of of power like Ty West and and Jim Mickle, uh, Kelly Reichert even, who I worked with when she was just starting out. I'm very much Revere the director in my producing work and the fact that it's my kid is just sort of an incidental thing. I take off my dad hat, well, a little bit. It's always there a little bit, but mostly uh, I'm just there serving uh, the singular vision and making sure it's not indulgent which can always happen, anyway. So that's the process.
2: It's pretty funny on set because I still call my dad Daddy for whatever reason. <laughs> so, <laughs> so whenever we're doing anything, you know, more professional, making movies wise, I I still call him Daddy. So then the other crew <laughs> members ask me, "Well, can I call him Daddy too?" <laughs> <laughs>
5: what was uh, what were the nicknames on Straight Bullets? We
2: had a funny. Uh, yeah, well there was it was like well, my friend Quinn was Puppy Bro. Um, I was Prince Bro. Right. <laughs> the Little Prince. Yeah. And then what
5: was I? I was, was I don't Daddy know Daddy Bro. Something. Yeah, those. <laughs> anyway, were, that oh was dear. like
2: week 3 nicknames. T- TMI. <laughs> well, my dad always likes to say that instead of tossing a ball around when we were when I was young, we would go out with a little point and shoot camera and uh, make movies. And I would have, you know, my friends over, we'd have our Nerf guns out, and we'd run around and tell little stories that way. And I, I eventually uh, made this series called The Endless Search, which was um, <laughs> maybe a, an eight or 10 part. It's kind of unclear. They've, some of them have been lost in the archives, but it's a little short film series when I was like, seven through 12, probably of my friends and I just endlessly wandering around searching for something that we never find with <laughs> Nerf guns, of course, and, and walkie talkies. And that was through, through making those films. Um, you know, my dad would shoot them on a little point and shoot camera, and then we'd edit them that day. That's kind of how I learned the craft, how I learned, you know, come up with the idea, shoot it, edit it. We just do these things in a day and then I'd be able to watch our work and I was really excited by that. And
5: I'd explain, I mean for me it was thrilling because I had a complete cast of people and all my camera moves are as carefully crafted as anything I would do in a major feature <laughs> with a 50 man <laughs> crew. I just loved being able to think on your feet and say, "Oh, we're going to start with a close-up, we're going to pan back, and then you guys start running at that exact moment, and then this will become a, a, you know, a, a steady camp shot, and all these, uh, <laughs> it was fantastic, it was good for me what were you getting at, though about
2: the endless search? oh, I don't know, just that that was um, that was one way you taught me how to just do it, go out and do it, you know?
5: Yeah, and then, um, you know, this, the other story, which I do tell maybe too often, is that Jack's first movie was a zombie film, and I was as proud as a father could be, and then after it was over, it was a half-hour movie. It's My first, actually, more,
2: my first like, real short that I right. made once I was more interested in film, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's on iTunes, right? <laughs> yeah, it was released with Stray Bullets, and it played at the Woodstock Film Festival, despite its... Length. length, yeah,
5: right. In fact, the only reason Jack made a feature is because he kept coming up with these half-hour shorts, and his mother said, "Why didn't you just make a feature if you're going to keep doing this? No one wants to program a half-hour movie." And he came to us very, you know, a couple days later and said, "I have a feature idea." So that was that was uh, an unfortunate result. But uh, <laughs> after uh, Jack's zombie movie, uh, he came to me and he said, uh, "Daddy." I'm not sure I'm going to make horror movies anymore. And uh, <laughs> I was heartbroken. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and here we are. We're making a war film next, which yeah.
5: is uh, Bananas.
2: Yeah, we're uh, entering pre-production on Foxhole, which is going to be my second feature, hoping to shoot in August of this of this summer, 2019. And, uh, it's, it's a yeah. lot of pressure on the
5: producer because we've got to. it's hard to explain to actors and stuff. Well, we have to shoot in August cuz he's going back to school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I go back to school like the 29th or something. One creative memory that stands out for me is we were making Stray Bullets and I was the cinematographer and Jack is in the movie, so I was shooting it and uh, we had discussed obviously the design of the film, so the frames were basically what Jack had wanted, but It was a great moment when there's the story of a character that I play getting um, a bullet wound tended to by the two other criminals in the story. And because Jack wasn't in that scene, he was able to take the camera. And I feel like it was the moment where he graduated into a filmmaker because he was filming. We had these beautiful old lenses because we wanted sort of a more dreamy aspect to this intimate scene and uh and he was doing focus cuz the room was so small that only he could fit in with the 3 of us and uh, it's a sentimental scene anyway because I'm the boss and I'm probably dying and the other guys are trying to help me out and they're going to cut the bullet out. So it had all this great texture and there was a lot of blood and, and then the music and I'm stammering away. And it was a very uh, sweet scene and intimate and Jack filmed it. And I swear to God, he grew two years. He walked out of there and he's like, that's filmmaking. and uh,
2: <laughs> Yeah. No, I, I do remember that. I, I even wrote my college essay on that. <laughs> but I think, you know, on that shoot I was fifteen and, you know, most everyone was older than me. Um, especially, you know, I was working with James LeGros and John Sparadakis, even Kevin Corrigan for a bit seasoned actors. And so I had to sort of, you know, find my strength throughout the shoot. And that was that was definitely the moment where I think I did at least the most sort of specific moment that I could cite. And I think it really just had to do, like you said, with my being in there alone without anyone else literally being able to fit into the room. (laughs) Um, In terms of thinking about my dad as a filmmaker when I was much younger and how that affected me. Well, I I do remember one, one time uh, he was in this room editing skin and bones, which was just sort of a TV special that he did when I was probably like eight or something, seven or eight. And, uh, it had um what's his name doug jones doug jones Doug Jones as this creepy wendigo uh sort of turned wendigo guy after he comes back from a hike in the woods gone wrong or something anyway I've, i don't think i've ever actually seen it because it scared me so much but i remember peeking through that door and seeing him edit it in here and then it totally it scarred me forever so i you know it's it's great that you know my dad who makes horror movies was able to of course, I mean, of course, it's bound to happen just scar me completely as a, as a little lad. But, you know, there's also the Cut memories to the of... the proud father. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there's also the memories of when, you know, he would show me Hitchcock or Murder on the Orient Express, especially scared me because of the, the flashes in the beginning during the kidnapping scene. Anyway, so old movies that were, uh, you know, critical to my film education when I was, like, eight and nine. (laughs) And sometimes I would have to, you know, come, come into this room at when we were, you know, after I'd gone to bed and sleep on the little couch there (laughs) because I was too scared. Um, But you know, it's funny. I've never, I haven't seen a lot of my dad's films because I think when I was younger, it was always like against the rules to watch habit or when to go. And now there's really no reason for me not to watch them, but it's like this weird thing where I still haven't seen a lot of them. And yet I know like everything about them. I feel like I know them inside out, except I haven't actually seen the movies yet. And so I really have to get around to doing that. It's like I've never seen Barry Lyndon. There's some
5: things that you almost savor not having seen yet. You You have something to look forward to in life. Not that my mood... Well, yes, you know me and Kubrick. (laughs) Same shelf in many households. But uh, the thing that um, you have seen The Last Winter, which is sort of one of the more... um, bigger buck uh, productions. The other movie we haven't really mentioned that I think was seminal was I Sell the Dead where I was an actor and I get into the guillotine and uh, that was kind of quite an amazing shoot. And actually, Beck Underwood, Jack's mother, was the production designer and it's a period piece. So uh, it's quite an extravagant production. We had horses and goats and Jack was a little goat boy. And... uh, And I was being dragged through the public square. And
2: there's that great story of when I called, okay. So when, so Glenn McQuaid, the director of, uh, (laughs) I saw the dead, a dear Irish friend of ours, they were shooting this scene on uh, long Island beach, doubling for, you know, the English beach or whatever. And, uh, they had zombies. It was like a big day. And, uh, Glenn asked me if I wanted to call action for this shot. And of course I was really excited. So. I, I wasn't quite sure what to do. I was eight, I think, seven or eight. But he, he just said, okay, you know, whenever you're ready. And I said, go. <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone kind of like looked at each other and then they did the, they did the shot. Then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I remember on Bitter Feast,
5: which was a very low-budget film by Joe Maggio uh, with Josh Leonard and James LeGros. I remember you started telling Joe what to do. Remember in the street? And you were like, I don't know why you're shooting it this way. I mean, you were like six or seven. I
2: was 10. I was nine. That's the one where I lived in the closet.
5: Right, but we had the New York shoot.
2: I do not remember that. Yeah,
5: but I mean, I'm sure you don't. You were in the fever of directing, and I had to (laughs) apologize to Joe and say, I'm sorry about my precocious kid telling you what to do. (laughs) Oh, dear.
2: Yeah, I always used to be sort of a bossy, you used to be bossy kid but now I I I think I've let that go but I do still have a a mode I click into when I start explaining my you know my story or something like my friends will tell me like jack like stop like you're yeah. clicking into your director mode That's... like just just tell me what's happening Oh my god <laughs> Another memory which is actually so recent that I haven't even sort of considered it a memory yet was you know shooting Depraved my dad's movie that uh, he shot about a year ago and had been trying to get made for like a decade. And I remember he first told me the story when we were sitting in, in a, like a seafood shack in Cape Cod visiting our, my grandparents, his parents, uh, like many, many summers ago. I was probably like 10 or something. And he told me the story of this modern Frankenstein tale. And I thought it was so cool, of course. And I knew it inside out. Again, never had read the script, but knew the story inside out. And then he, he was, you know, finally able to make it last year and he had this crippling back injury. So he was like this hunched over cripple the whole shoot, which was kind of comical, but sad. Um, anyway, so that was, it was so cool to finally watch him work again on something that I had been aware of, you know, how passionate he was about it for so long. And then to, to go to that set was like so cool for me. I was just going gaga over the whole thing all over again. And then during the uh, premiere, the second the credits started rolling, Uh, Not during the movie, but the second the movie ended, I burst out in tears uncontrollably. (laughs) And I needed to like grab onto the person next to me to like find my bearings. Because I don't know, I think it just hit me so hard. The You know, that story that I'd known for so long, I knew how strongly my dad felt about making it and how hard he had worked. And, you know, I was there for every, you know... Every time an act famous actor turned him down, I was like, Daddy, like, Daddy, did you hear from the Game of Thrones guy? Like,
5: (laughs) I remember this fantastic thing. I think I saved it. Speaking of crying now, I'm going to tear up just from my little kid there was a piece of paper and he said I know who's going to play Polidori and I flipped it over and he would printed out a picture of Ray Winstone <laughs> yeah. which would have been awesome I remember that that was that like was when we Departed were, was my it favorite was Departed. movie Departed we'd yeah. seen Departed so many times <laughs> that we thought maybe Ray <laughs> Winstone would be in my picture oh for God's sakes yeah. the dream continues so as you see I've raised a delusional child <laughs> it's a really quite Tragic. <laughs> the father son bond.
0: <laughs> now it can be told. Larry Fessenden, Jack Fessenden, thank you. It was really, really cool to visit their den. And to hang out with those guys.
1: Really was. And thanks again to the Pauls for joining us here on our special Father's Day extravaganza at the Talk House Podcast. Yeah,
0: whether you're a father or just plan on being one soon, happy Father's Day. Hope you have a great day.
1: Today's show was recorded by a number of people. DJP for Real was recorded by Luther Banks at Patchwork Studios in Atlanta.
0: Our own Elia Einhorn, the man sitting next to me, recorded Larry Fessenden and Jack Fessenden at Fessenden HQ in New York. And the fabulous witticisms that comprise our intro and
1: outro (laughs) were recorded by Mark the Producer here at Hook and Fade Studios in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Thanks, Mark. Listeners, make sure to subscribe to the TalkHouse podcast. We have a very
0: cool episode coming up next week. Indeed, we have Lake Bell in conversation with Santigold. Boom. It's a great episode.
1: The Talk House podcast theme song was composed and performed by The Range. We have a few fun pictures from today's episode on our socials. That's at Talk House. Nick, on this special Father's Day edition, let's send a little love to the girls who call us father. Cordelia. Conway. We love you. Love you. Till next week, I'm
0: Elia Einhorn. I'm Nick Dawson.
1: Peace.
0: And fathers. Nailed it.